Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Hello, everybody. On behalf of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies, I'd like to welcome all to another episode of FEPS Talk. My name is Hervi Giusto, and I'm Senior Policy Advisor at FEPS, as well as Editor-in-Chief of the Progressive Post, FEPS Magazine. Today, we have the great pleasure of hosting for our talk Professor Salma Baba, who is Director of the Center for European Studies at Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi. Salma has been working extensively on international relations and globalization, foreign policy and security, as well as regional integration. At FEPS, we have had the pleasure of collaborating with her on the topic of multilateralism in the framework of a long-term project whose aim was to define the features that multilateralism should take in the current context. The results of this project will be presented in a large online conference, which will take place on September 18th. The title of the conference is United for a New Multilateralism and will take place on the eve of the UN General Assembly. Jasama, welcome to FAPS Talks and thank you very much for having accepted our invitation to uh, discuss a little bit with, our, with us about a topic which is always crucial because we are talking of the relations between countries, we're talking about multilateralism, that in recent time seems to have become even more important, more decisive. This year, the UN General Assembly, for the first time ever, ever will be held on online format, a sign of the difficult times we are going through all over the world due to the pandemic. And the topic of the reform of the UN architecture is going to be one of the main topics of this UNGA. And this topic has been extensively discussed in many different fora around the world, including, you know, within FAPS. The starting point for um, a discussion about the reform is the fact that multilateralism today is kind of weakened. Its change is not anymore capable of facing the current challenges. In your opinion, what factors, what main factors, because there are many, I think, what forces have provoked this weakening? And why do we need a reform of the multilateral system? It's a big question for a short talk, I know. Thank you, Eddie, and I'd like to thank FEPS for this opportunity to be part of this uh, podcast series on multilateralism and its reform. I think at the end of 75 years of an architecture which was created, uh, you know, when World War II came to an end, we are witnessing a time to, uh, you know, reconstruct uh, how we do collective action together. And, and the reasons for the problem are many. Uh, I would start by saying that in the current context, uh, you know, um, a big point has been the transition in power which has taken place between states, which is transforming the equation between states. And on the other hand, uh, the growing impact of globalization, which has produced an uneven impact going forward. And what it has done, it has reduced transaction costs at some level, but has also increased uh, the transaction cost for lots of states. And uh, a major point also is the principles governing the idea of multilateralism. Should it be a top-down approach or should it be something which is far more representative of what is we call the collective? So that means uh, something of a bottom-up approach as well. So all of these have come together, as you correctly pointed out, at a very important turning point. 75 years is a very good 
you know, it's a good point to do stock taking, but also we've been confronted in the last uh, months of this year of 2020 by a global crisis, really, truly global in nature for the first time in, in uh, living his memory, uh, which has impacted all countries, irrespective of they are big or small, weak or strong. Uh, second, it has uh, undermined the capabilities and capacities of many states. And third, it has, I think, brought to the front our weakness of collective action. All of these come together to show that we need a new impetus for multilateralism today, if I should put it that way. Mm -hmm. You have already put on the table lots, lots of inputs. First of all, you have been talking about transaction costs. How would you like to, to better explain what, what do you mean with the fact that we have reduced transaction costs and at the same time they have increased? So I think I'd like to bring a, a factor called technology over here, which has been, you know, biggest disruptor that we're looking at. Uh, and technology can be seen as something which has enabled a lot of benefits at everyday life. Uh, but at the same time, if there is a lack of infrastructure, uh, as we see in many countries, uh, you know, in, say, Asia and Africa, then your access to technology would mean that it would be limited. And therefore, it would, it would put you on the other side of the digi digital divide. So something uh, which, which has reduced the everyday transaction cost of going to an office because the technology is there and it is accessible, suddenly because of the lack of infrastructure, actually puts more people out of the system. Uh, at the same time, technology is disrupting the way states are also doing business. States have been the arbitrators of decision-making at the global level. Uh, and, you know, they are the ones who consolidate. They are the ones who bring uh, the decision-makers around the table. So today we find that, you know, 100 communities can be created on a technology platform, which enable, uh, you know, thinking and articulating of ideas. Uh, so I think what we're seeing is we're witnessing with, uh, you know, businesses, non-state actors, uh, the impact of technology creating a new parallel universe, so to speak. Uh, you know, we, are, we have business entities which have budgets which are bigger than national budgets, and they can play a, a, a huge impact and role on agenda setting uh, in a third country, for example. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to expand uh, and ask about when we talk of transaction cost, does it come purely from the point of view of the government? Or does, do we also look at it in terms of what is in it for the people? Ultimately, governments function for their people, for the citizens, for the common person, right? And they're all going to experience this uh, in very, very diverse ways. So I think what we are looking at is how do the different factors that one has listed, uh, you know, become an enabler in the lives of common people? And how do we all benefit by reducing what we would call as uh, these transaction costs, which manifest themselves in very diverse mm -hmm. you, you haven't actually mentioned the word, but I could not avoid thinking about it while you were talking, that the word I'm thinking of is inequalities. You didn't say it, but what I could read in your words is the fact that inequalities among people not just among countries, are actually increasing. There are less capability of people to access in certain countries, in certain regions, to access uh, technologies, to access services, and so on. So, of course, for a progressive foundation, inequality is a key word because this reducing inequalities, even cancelling inequalities should be our main aim. So what kind of instruments, in your opinion, should we use in order 
to reduce as much as possible inequalities on a global level? This is the big question, <laughs> which can kind of an easy, an easy answer, I'm, uh, I'm afraid. I think you're very right. Uh, I, I used another word for it. I think what we are witnessing uh, over the decades uh, in the post-45 period has been, uh, you know, the growth of asymmetry at one level between states. And I think at the state level, we talk of capability and capacity. And when we come down below the state at the population level is the whole issue of, uh, you know, inequalities. I think the fact that at the global level, we have moved from the Millennium Development Goals to the Sustainable Development Goals and that every country has signed on to it shows that inequality is not something which is located only in the global south. It is something which exists in every state. And in that respect, uh, you know, you're right. Uh, our challenge becomes uh, twofold. Our challenge is twofold for the reason that as states make up on the economic growth and development, the focus cannot just be on GDP numbers. The focus also has to be on social capital growth as well, on how access is made available. So older societies face even more challenges because of the cultural embeddedness of certain ideas, which you know prevent people from accessing things. And that is where I think technology offers one of those instruments, which is able to, in some ways, like I said, offer an opportunity for reducing some of these inequalities, provided that it is accessible, available, and another word is affordable. Mm -hmm. So, you know, otherwise technology will end up becoming another gatekeeping process, uh, which will become, again, a dual level of gatekeeping, gatekeeping between those countries which can afford to march with technology ahead and benefit from that, and communities of people who also cannot, because of, uh, you know, the affordability of technology, not be able to access. Um, so I think uh, some of these inequalities today, we don't have to wait, for example, to put a road into place to carry a vaccine to a local hospital. Today, a drone can do that for you. So you can reduce like, what I mentioned earlier, the transaction cost, get that uh, medicine out to a community which is vulnerable and needing it. But the point is, this would require you know, working collectively. We are facing inequalities of two kinds. One is between the states. That has not actually gone away. And one is what globalization has done, has also increased the inequalities between people. So I think this is a serious challenge uh, for all of us at a collective level. We cannot continue to coexist like this with these inequalities proliferating more and more around us. And I think the... uh, Sustainable development goals, uh, you know, they, they clearly draw attention to the interconnectedness of the political, economic, socio cultural, uh, military security dimensions. You cannot say that we will address inequality in one area and it will automatically take care of it in the other area. No, it will have some spillover effects, but you need to think in a multi sectoral way to address inequality today. I think that access here seems to be the key word. Access to services, access to technologies seems to be the, the key word to face inequalities altogether. You, you hinted for to, to the question of the, of the COVID crisis. Uh, I also mentioned the fact that uh, it's the COVID crisis, the pandemic has exposed even more trends and weaknesses that were already there. It made them uh, deeper and it made them more evident for, for everybody. All the countries uh, of the world are currently facing the, uh, the different degrees of, uh, of, of the pandemic. Some countries that got out of the lockdown, some others are re-entering lockdown <laughs> stages. But we, more than ever, we all feel that we are facing a common challenge. 
I think that the pandemic has shown above all that we are the same in front of illnesses. We are all human beings in front of a, of a pandemic. But uh, countries have different instruments and different capabilities to face that. So the COVID crisis, in your opinion, does represent an opportunity. Uh, will we be able to take stock of this opportunity? Or rather, what you see is, is more pessimistic and uh, nationalist trends and uh, national divides will actually increase because of the COVID crisis. So you're very right to point out that, uh, you know, the COVID actually brings us to that center of the road where we have two choices before us globally. Uh, I mean, it has exposed our common vulnerability. But the question we are facing is, do we have a, a strength for uh, common collective action? I think that is extremely um, uh, important. Uh, why do I say that? Uh, because I think what we have witnessed is that, uh, you know, public health has, has not been made part of the agenda of global public, uh, of global governance, you know, as one of the global public goods. And when you put it out as a global public good, then you will imagine cooperation in a very different way. So in the absence of labeling it as a global public good, what we have ended up seeing is a very nationalistic response to it. We have competition between countries and pharmaceutical companies, for example, in developing the vaccine, which also begs the question that, you know, competition is good, it's healthy, it drives you to bring out certain better elements, uh, but it should not be competition for profit and competition for exclusion. It should be competition to, to say, develop maybe a couple of different vaccines which benefits everybody, right? And the absence of uh, an immediate reaction by the UN Security Council, for example, in articulating a position on why COVID is a threat, uh, you know, is, is really a threat to global security and stability, it has been so long in coming, shows to us the current weakness of it, that, as you correctly pointed out, every country has receded into a national silo. This country is impacted, so it has to be a specific kind of response. Without recognizing that a pandemic like this recognizes no borders, and that's the reason it went from one country to another. So a pandemic recognizes no borders, but solutions are border-specific. So we have to find a via media, because this is only the beginning of more. Uh, we cannot always, uh, you know, be sitting closed behind uh, doors and working. That's not going to be possible. Um, economies have to get back on track. Uh, a lot of life will get back to track, which means that there has to be an attempt to finding a common way forward and reducing the impulse for specific nationalistic responses, which tie in very much to domestic political compulsions. Uh, because, you know, states like to project and show their own people, see what we have achieved. So I think it, it, we have to find that balance. And going forward, uh, it has to be on the agenda of multilateralism, which is why I strongly global uh, public health has to be now labeled as a global public good, which means collective action is the way forward. So I see that there is cooperation between some countries. India, for example, is also part of the COVID, uh, COVID vaccine development you know, clinical trials are also, for example, taking place over here. But we need a lot more. At this point, collective action is limited. As you correctly pointed out, the impact of the pandemic has been so unequal, some more, some less, uh, that the sense of emergency which captures a country can never be shared as the same sense of emergency. For those who have been able to control the ep uh, epidemic better, 
may feel that they are on a better track. And so the discourse is there. So I think it's about how do we also take a public discourse to say that collective action is the way forward. We cannot wait and watch for a community in one country to be destroyed and say that we are protected. Like I said, between a pandemic which knows no borders and collective actions which is bound by borders, we need to come on to the topic of our discussion, the multilateral way. Mm -hmm. That is the way forward. And collective action needs functioning mechanisms to implement changes and to implement uh, recovery plans and so on. But the current system... You mentioned before that the Security Council seemed powerless and the WHO, which is the international organization which to deal with health issues, has been criticized a lot because of its, uh, again, incapability to deal with the, with the situation, but not because of lack of willingness, but because of lack of mechanism of responsibilities in the field. So and the question of the reform, of the UN architecture is one of the issues, as we mentioned before, that is going to be discussed at the General Assembly, that has been discussed in um, universities and in, uh, within civil society organizations and so on. But what kind of reforms, in your opinion, does the UN need nowadays? And what is actually feasible? Because it is not easy to change the UN, and this is actually why, the, in the big terms, the UN hasn't hasn't changed that much in the last uh, 75 years. We are still stuck with the veto system that was created in 1945 at the end of the of World War II, and the the winner of World War II still hold the power to stop decisions, which is very uh, a system which is very outdated nowadays. Uh, before giving you the floor again, I would like to underline that we do like the UN, we do believe in the UN, but we want a, a UN which is stronger, which is more efficient in order to support cooperation among states. I close this parenthesis and I give you the floor. So what kinds of re, or reform we, you, you think it's, it's feasible and it's necessary? So yes, I think uh, the UN reflects collective aspirations, but you have to ask those two words. How close do they come together? Is it the aspiration you pointed out, uh, something which was there from post-1945? And does it resonate with the aspirations of other states which are coming up today? I think that is the biggest challenge between the push for status quo about what was created in 1945 and the demand from other states which have uh, you know, grown in the system for a greater voice So what, what does it translate into? I think the whole idea of collective action also requires to take in the voice of the small and the vulnerable uh, who are more prone to conflict. Uh, and, you know, look at what is happening to the changing uh, patterns of interaction. Uh, the multilateralism of today needs to go beyond what, we are, what I would call is um, a donor-recipient idea of multilateral. Somebody somewhere will make the rules and the others will implement. That is, I think, where... Uh, One is stuck. And a third point, uh, you know, as I address, uh, you know, what is critical is also to recognize the fundamental political shift in the power equations which is taken. Uh, so that is why we have the standoff between the status quo and the urge for reform. Uh, I think the biggest challenge would be how do we bring the different dimensions of the multilateral under one overarching roof? Today, as you look at uh, the UN structure, And the other structures which have come up, uh, not everything is under one big umbrella. 
So which means it has also resulted in the proliferation of club governance and trade being discussed somewhere else, political and security being discussed somewhere else. All of this has led to what we're saying to different kinds of trade-offs being secured uh, between the states. Um, so going ahead, it is the absence of trust in the current um, architecture that is there today. I think that is one of the reasons why there are issues about its own legitimacy coming. So um, I can say from an Indian perspective, uh, India has uh, you know, bit of, uh, done a big push for the reform of the UN institutions. India strongly believes in it and strongly endorses multilateralism. And uh, let me point out three important positions India will assume uh, you know, uh, from 2020 uh, going ahead. Uh, in 2021, India will uh, join the non-permanent seat of the UN Security Council. Uh, it will also chair the BRICS summit uh, in 2022, and it will host the uh, G20 uh, summit as well. So, you know, for India, we are looking at um, a certain kind of a leadership position coming forward. Uh, and so that would be important to then ask, how do you uh, build this trust and legitimacy back into the institutions? That would, that would be extremely important. To expect that the current um, architecture would be replaced, uh, you know, by something totally new, I don't think that is going to happen. But how do we expand uh, the circle of decision making? I think that is extremely important uh, going ahead. Uh, technology has become the biggest disruptor to state power. And the current multilateralism endorses the states as the primary, uh, you know, actors on this map of global governance. I think we have to recognize that we need to build a new kind of engagement model. I think in the climate change issues, we have seen how we've had a new kind of a partnership, a new kind of a PPP model, where non-state actors, uh, non-governmental organizations have also come in and contributed to building up the framework. And that would also be required. The question before us also is, are some issues far more amenable to an input from the non-state level? Uh, you know, like climate, uh, because there it is easy to mobilize people. We feel the climate impact every day. Is politics going to be the, you know, the make or break point? Because states are not willing to share power even with their own people. Uh, states are very possessive of what they have. Uh, and if technology disrupts the ability of the state to mobilize and organize its people, I think that's where we will need to see. Uh, and a third would be, you know, uh, trade. So I think we would we will have to bring these dimensions because all of this impacts very clearly on one of the very fundamental issues you asked is will the multilateralism of tomorrow address inequality? Will it be able to reduce it as we go ahead? We need an institutional response. I don't see an overhaul, but I, I would definitely want to see an expansion of how decision making takes place. Uh, which is far more inclusive. I, I would like to thank you for having brought the, the Indian perspective in this discussion because uh, FAPS is obviously a European political foundation and we tend obviously to be a little bit Eurocentric when we discuss uh, international issues. So it is always interesting and I think it will bring some interesting reaction also in, uh, in our listeners to, to listen from a, from a different point of view, like the Indian one. Uh, and you also mentioned a very, a very important point, that, that of the, how re, uh, reforms are decided. You said that states are not 
going to share power even with their own people. And the risk is uh, that any any kind of reform is not only top-down reform, but also a reform that is pushed by the usual suspects instead of being inclusive, instead of, of involving as many actors, not just state actors, in the picture. Mm-hmm. So I think this is something we should, we should underline, that we should push really for uh, the involvement of as many actors, including the non-state actors, as possible in, a, in, a, in any kind of decision-making process. Before closing our very interesting talk, I would like to uh, ask you something to, to bring some, some hope and, uh, and uh, some optimistic view. Um, if I have to sum up the, um, the approach of the FEPS work and of the FEPS uh, study results to this new form of multilateralism that we envisage is the idea of having a fair and inclusive kind of multilateralism. What I would like to ask you is, what do you understand with fair and inclusive? What do fair and inclusive mean when we talk of multilateralism? I mean, we have given some, we've talking, been talking about inequality, of, about involving other actors, but let's explain better what is fair, what is inequality, what is inclusive when we talk about multilateralism. Thank you for that question. I think it's extremely important. I think going forward, a fair and inclusive multilateralism should recognize that diversity is part of our culture around the world. And you cannot build a multilateralism which homogenizes everything. Uh, yes, uh, all states collectively recognize universal values, but there cannot be one single way of development. Why do I say that? Because I think diversity is is in the DNA of human history. And uh, we will all flourish and grow only when we recognize and embrace this diversity uh, around us. That means that one idea of growth will have a hundred different ways in which it will manifest itself. So I think going forward, I would envision a multilateralism which will argue for a new global political contract of global governance, of a new, a new contract of collective action, which is conscious that it stands at that turning point of uh, our current uh, collective history, where today we have more resources at our disposal to reduce these inequalities going ahead than we did in 45. That today we have um, uh, more access uh, to technology to reduce transaction cost going ahead. That today we are in a position to collectively uh, reduce the asymmetry between states uh, so that it is not only the growth of a state, but more importantly, the growth of people. Uh, And fourth, to recognize that, uh, you know, uh, it is about the political decision in which we link the economic, social and security dimensions uh, to construct a new, uh, a more inclusive and a multi-stakeholder way of expanding the idea of collective action. Those would be my, uh, you know, key points going ahead. So we, we do, you, you're saying that we do have the resources to, to implement collective actions. We do have the resources to, to reduce inequalities. What we do need is politi- the political will to do it. Absolutely. I think that we, we need a new kind of a, political mission, mm-hmm. uh, a political mission to, to recognize that we have it. It's not about it's, it, it is not there. 
Mm-hmm. But I think it's a, I mean, do we, do we have that uh, political mission to really bring about transformation? Or do we want status quo to continue? Well, I, I, I think if you know that you have the resources, then we have to create that collective endeavor like you are doing through the conference, uh, through these podcasts, to make people aware that let's call upon our different, uh, you know, communities to raise the voice that uh, we stand at that point where we can truly be the beacon of change, of uh, rewriting what is collective action and what is uh, a fair and inclusive multilateral. Thank you, Salma, for this very interesting conversation. I'm very, I'm sure that our listeners will be very pleased to, to listen to your opinions. And thank you very much also for your contribution to the FEPS project on new multilateralism. And uh, we hope to continue our, um, our collaboration with you in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPSTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.